0: Hi, my name is Matt Dawson and welcome to Ortho Science Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Louis Katz. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. But first, let me introduce you to our listeners. Dr. Louis Katz is currently the Chief Medical Officer of Mississippi Valley Regional Blood Center. He's an infectious disease specialist and an adjunct clinical professor of internal medicine at the Roy and Lucille Carver College of Medicine. His transfusion medicine career has been dominated by attention to transfusion, transmitted infections. He has served multiple terms of chair of the AABB Transfusion Transmitted Diseases Committee. Dr. Katz is on the editorial board of the journal, Transfusion. And he has been the author of more than 60 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters. It is truly an honor having you with us today, Dr. Katz. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share your experience with us about this very important topic. My pleasure. To start off with, uh, in the context of COVID-19, what do we know about respiratory viruses and transfusion-transmitted infections, or TTIs?
1: Uh, Well, I think the bottom line is that there really is no precedent for uh, TTI due to respiratory pathogens. Most of this observation and study has been around influenza A, uh, including the 2009 uh, pandemic, Uh, There's also no evidence with regards to SARS-1 or the Mideast Respiratory uh, Syndrome virus for uh, transfusion transmission. There is evidence for circulation of either the virus or viral components in blood, and that has been used as a surrogate for the threat uh, so that that we can calibrate our response um, to the pandemic. Uh, but no evidence of actual transmission of any of them.
0: And to build on that, there is an interesting article that you wrote um, regarding this topic that really talks about four factors for a pathogen to cause TTI. And can you expand on those four conditions and, and how COVID aligns with those or not?
1: Yeah, these are really pretty standard and I think logical uh, criteria that we've been using for years to try to prioritize uh, existing and emerging pathogens regarding the, the threat they pose to uh, the blood supply. So the four, generically, are the presence of the pathogen, infectious pathogen, in the blood of a donor well enough to donate. That's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, if the pathogen is there, it needs to survive in contemporary components and through contemporary component manufacturing processes for long enough to establish infection in a uh, susceptible recipient. Most of the data on this second criteria come from things like spiking studies, uh, particularly um, in uh, the setting of uh, validating uh, pathogen reduction uh, processes uh, against Uh, the appropriate pathogens or or model viruses. And that includes SARS-CoV-2, where we are seeing small amounts of evidence for the available pathogen reduction systems that they do indeed, as expected, inactivate the virus. Then uh, once um, inoculated by the parenteral route, it has to find susceptible tissues in a susceptible patient. And given that this is not the natural route of infection for respiratory viruses, I mean they, they establish infection in respiratory tissues, not other organs, it's not assured that parenteral inoculation of a respiratory virus can do that in every case. Then it finally has to cause an illness that we care about following parenteral inoculation. And if we look at dengue, Zika, and chikungunya virus, for example, we have a lot of experience, particularly with dengue, where some reds study uh, systematic data from Brazil uh, is very informative. We have a fair amount of data, observational and, and uh, epidemiologic, suggesting that while there may be uh, live virus in blood components from the appropriate donors, uh, they fail to establish productive infection by the parenteral route and this may have to do with lots of different things but most especially totally different pathogenesis uh, when a virus is inoculated by a mosquito or tick vector or whatever else subcutaneously and may encounter and alter both innate and adaptive immune responses compared to direct intravenous inoculation. At the end of the day, proof requires that we demonstrate that a bug in the recipient and the donor are the same. And this is a very rigorous sequence of tasks that involves having specimen from before a transfusion, a suspect transfusion, uh, having the bug afterwards, and having the bug from the ostensible source. It's very, very rigorous. At this point, there have been some 45 million SARS-CoV-2 transmissions uh, worldwide uh, without any successful allegations of transfusion transmission. Pretty reassuring, but not not ideal evidence.
0: Okay. And I know in, in some literature and news, you mentioned this concept of RNA emia. Uh, what does that mean, this kind of phrase you coined? And can you tell us if there's any percentages of RNAemia reported in people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2?
1: There's a lot of data being developed around this, but obviously RNAemia is the presence of RNA, which uh, many people take as a surrogate for the virus, but it's not necessarily a surrogate for the virus. The presence of RNA does not, in fact, demonstrate the presence of infectious virus And when I'm reviewing manuscripts, I make that point repeatedly to authors who use the term biremia when they should be talking about RNAemia or nucleic acidemia. So very early on, we started to see studies from China where uh, some prospective screening of blood donors was done, and in fact found RNA in something like four of 8,000 donors. Subsequently, we've seen data from a number of other sources, prospective surveillance, uh, but in particular from testing residual samples from donors who called back after blood donation to say they'd been diagnosed with COVID. It's very clear that we can find the RNA of the virus. The very limited look-back studies that have been done, that is uh, going to the recipients of components from those donors who had RNA, very limited data has not yet demonstrated anything that uh, suggests there's transfusion transmission. None of this is ideal evidence, I think, but it is at least reassuring that widespread transfusion transmitted infection is not occurring. The presence of RNA or antigens in and of itself just doesn't constitute evidence of infectious organisms, or even if infectious organisms are present, insufficient number to establish an infection. There's good data about the long persistence of viral RNA from SARS-CoV-2 in respiratory specimens with the inability to recover infectious virus. So they're just really not the same.
0: Okay. So, you know, you talked about those couple studies showing RNA in donors. Are there any other reports or studies that are actually finding the virus of SARS-CoV-2 in donors?
1: I've seen nothing that has identified replication-competent virus outside of the respiratory tract. There are immunofluorescence and electron micrographic studies, most particularly with SARS-1 and MERS-CoV, demonstrating antigens in extra-pulmonary tissues and electron microscopy that actually shows what looks like intact virions. That said, once again, for none of the three respiratory coronaviruses causing severe disease, the ones we're interested in, is there any good clinical or epidemiologic evidence of transfusion transmitted infection or disease?
0: So that's great. Um, you know, a final question we had then to kind of summarize the topic, which is, you know, if we're seeking is obviously the objective goal, uh, safety for donors and of course for patients who receive blood transfusion. What are the, our options? What does the data say? And what are the current uh, guidelines and suggestions?
1: Well, so I think FDA's COVID guidance has actually been spot on. And essentially what they're telling us is that donors need to be well on the day of donation and meet all other extant criteria for acceptable donors. So that's what we need to be doing in the donor room. And, uh, and I think uh, medical directors, chief medical officers, the regulators, and others need to be paying cl- very close attention to data that's going to develop over the next several months and, and probably a couple of years. There are studies that will follow prospective studies that will identify donors with RNA at the time of donation, will build repositories of samples from those donors, uh, and do things like tissue culture and animal inoculation, trying to demonstrate whether there is or is not infectious virus. So this is like a lot of what's going on with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 infection. When I think about it from a clinical standpoint, and I tell people, well, ask me in six months and I might have a more definitive answer.
0: All right, great. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time. This was really interesting and I think really valuable uh, for you to share your expertise with us on this.
1: You're welcome and, and uh, thank you again for the invitation.
0: Um, so I hope all of you listening enjoyed this podcast episode when we discuss the data and arguments to the question of if SARS-CoV-2 can be considered currently a transfusion transmitted infection. Make sure to review the section within the podcast description for reading materials suggested in our reference list. Uh, based on our podcast today, I leave you with the Orthopop quiz. What were the four conditions discussed for a pathogen to cause a TTI? Go ahead back and take a listen if you don't remember. Uh, so thank you for listening today. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we'll be discussing more complex questions that we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 75 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.